G people. Hello and welcome to episode 182 of Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi, Global Strategy Director for Crypto here at 11FS, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? Anything exciting that you've been working on lately? What you want to tell us about? I am fantastic. It's been a great start to the year. I can't believe it's already March. Uh, last week, we just introduced our first Visa Creator Program cohort. So we have five artists, amazing, talented creators from all over the world. Uh, and we're actually opening our first Visa Creator Discord. Uh, so it's been super fun going through that process and trying to expand to some new channels. And so anyone interested in the future of creators, NFTs, the Visa Creator Program is a really exciting initiative. Awesome. No, that's great. Uh, here at the firm, we're doing the home buying report we launched uh, last week. So it's been pretty exciting times to see how Web3 and mortgages will work together in the future. So it's great to have all of you with us in today's show. This is a very exciting new show. And our main stories are one, the SEC lawsuit against Paxos over the BUSD is baffling the crypto community. Two, Coinbase launches the L2 blockchain network in the Ethereum ecosystem called Base, and Spotify is testing token-enabled music playlists. To dig into this, we're also joined by some fantastic guests making a debut on the show. Welcome Sigal Mandelker from Ribbit Capital. How are you doing today? Great. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me. It's great to be here with all of you. Welcome. Another debut as well, welcome Juan David Mendieta, Chief Strategy Officer and Co-Founder of Keyrock. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me, guys. Glad to be here. Awesome. So before we dive in, just as a reminder to the listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. Let's get started. So the SEC lawsuit against Paxos over BUSD is baffling the crypto community. Paxos Trust Company issued stablecoin Binance USD as being the sites of the United States regulator and sparked various reactions from the crypto community. On February 13th, the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, issued a Wells notice to Paxos alleging that BUSD is an unregistered security. On that same day, the New York Department of Financial Services ordered Paxos to halt the issuance of BUSD. As Paxos faces regulatory scrutiny on several fronts, various members of the crypto community took to Twitter to give their takes on the situation. From disregarding the issues as uh, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, as we call it, to calling it an attack against the Binance Exchange, crypto community members laid down various theories on the allegations that BUSD is an unregistered security. So, I think this is a massive piece of news because Binance is the largest global crypto exchange. BUSD is used in various um, blockchains and in various um, DeFi protocols as a dollar-pegged stablecoin. It is important for the ecosystem and it's also important for the dominance of the US in the DeFi space. So I just wanted to kind of start this debate. I'm going with you, uh, Juan David. What is your take? Why do you feel that this is coming straight into Binance? And what would be the role to play around Paxos? Because these are two of the largest companies in crypto and especially in the space for stablecoins. What's your, what's your overall take on this situation? So we can start with that. I mean, for, for a start, it's definitely from the point of view of the SEC, these are companies that are the, the correct companies to have this discussion with, correct? So they look at something that they are not sure of, which is, are stable coins a security? Overall, I think that majority of people in the crypto community would disagree with that statement. But that doesn't mean that is not something that we need to consider that there needs to be some proper regulation around it, correct? And and that is not to be, not to be underestimated because the reality of it is that when it comes down to a company like Paxos and what is the business model that they are running, what people should not forget is that the business model is that the US dollar deposits are used to generate yield for them as a company, not for the user, but it's definitely very different than a utility token. It's, it's a different beast. And as such, there needs to be a higher protection for users because when people are buying stable coins, they are not purposely engaging into a speculative investment. And as such, 
they should be protected more than in cases where you're purposely engaging into a speculative investment. I personally do not agree with the idea that it's a security, of course, uh, in the same way that uh, a bank that has a digital representation of fiat is also still not a security, correct? Like a fractional reserve model, I would say is even worse than a stable coin in this particular case, and it's not considered a security. So that, that, that is my, that, those are my two cents on that. And in terms of Binance, look, I mean, they are the, they are the top dog at the moment, and there's, there's a lot of scrutiny going around it. I think this, this might be just a way for them to get information and, and try to really dig in into what is the, the current financial situation of the company. Got it. Seagal, I'm going to go with you and, and maybe kind of get your kind of overall take on, on the situation. Do you agree with that, Juan? Do you think this is, is there a potential or any angle that this would at any rate be considered a security and, and why would that be? So um, just by way of background, before I was at Ribbit, I was also the Undersecretary of Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, which meant that I was one of the top regulators in this space over financial institutions. I ran the sanctions program, among other things. And my motto as a general matter was that we had to provide as much guidance to the private sector as we could across all of our programs, right? So we did that with crypto. We issued a big piece of guidance in 2019. FinCEN had been regulating crypto since 2013, and what we saw as a result of that is illicit activity has really come down very dramatically. It's worked with companies, worked with exchanges, because we recognized that if you want to go after illicit finance, which was what our objective was to keep our country safe, you have to bring companies into the regulatory perimeter and not push them out. You got to tell them what the rules are. Um, what to look out for and how to work hand in hand with you um, if you want to achieve your long-term objectives. My worry in this space, without getting into any particular potential enforcement action, my worry right now about this space is that regulators aren't quite sure what their long-term objectives are. Somebody who's now you know, an investor in this space, but also has a long national security background. When I think about a stable coin and particularly a US pegged stable coins, and I'm not talking about the Binance stable coin at all, I think about from a long-term perspective, how should the US be viewing these stable coins, which can actually enable the reach of the US dollar in many different respects all over the all over the world that's what they should be really thinking about how do we incentivize these kinds of companies to grow out of the US so that ultimately the US has a much broader reach is at the cutting edge of financial innovation etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's what i'm not seeing right now right i mean whether it's circle or paxos or any of these companies They've come in, they've said, I wanna be registered. Um, some of them have had applications pending for years, by the way. They've said like, look at my books, you know, look under the hood, tell me what to do and I'll, and I'll do it, um, which is exactly what we want them to do. And so then when enforcement actions kind of hit them on the backside, you know, they start to think about whether or not the U.S. is the right home for them. And again, from like a longer term U.S. national interest perspective, that could be very, very bad and dangerous for our country. So that's how I, again, not a, a comment on a particular action, but that's how I look at this. U.S. has to start defining what its long term interests are, work hand in hand with the private sector to achieve those interests um, instead of regulating by enforcement where you know, they're not providing sufficient clarity to a private sector that's really quite desperate for it. Yeah, we are indeed in the era of collaboration, and we would expect that to be true as well for legislators and regulators uh, trying to uh, make their way in a crypto. Uh, Kai, let me go for you, man. Uh, what is your, I mean, you're, you're, a, you're a stable coin connoisseur, if I've ever seen <laughs> one. So what is your take on this? A, a stable coin connoisseur. I, I, I like that. I, I think the the first question for the space was really how much of this is about Binance and the specific nuances of this product BUSD and how much of it was about just the construct of stablecoins in general. And it's interesting to note that you know Paxos has multiple stablecoins, 
They have a stablecoin called USDP that has nothing to do with Binance. And you know, from the reporting, that was not you know, named or, or that was not an issue in this. So it was specifically around BUSD. And now BUSD, you know, as I understand it, you know, has been authorized by the NYDFS. And NYDFS also came out and had a, a, a comment and a, a statement on this. And there were some interesting ways that BUSD was used. For example, BUSD was only authorized to be issued on the Ethereum blockchain. And then Binance you know, allegedly would take BUSD on Ethereum and use that to back BUSD on other blockchains. Uh, and so these were kind of multiple versions of BUSD. There was one on Binance Smart Chain and one on other blockchains. And so that's something that's kind of a interesting nuance that doesn't really exist with USDP or others. There's also the question around, I believe there were some programs where you could earn yield on BUSD you know, on Binance you know, as a user. If you, you know, d deposited BUSD there, you could earn uh, some yield. So there were a number of interesting components of this specific product. And it's very hard to determine you know, from the reporting, was this about those nuances or is this about all stablecoins in general? But the fact that USDP wasn't named, the fact that we haven't heard anything confirmed around USDC, it's definitely confusing for the ecosystem when you don't know. Uh, but you think that if it was all stablecoins are securities, there would be a different approach than a just a, an action just specifically about BUSD. Kai, I totally agree with you on everything that you just said. However, why is it that like the, the circles of the world, you know, why why is it that we keep talking about building a f regulatory or legislative framework around stable coins and we have yet to see it, right? So I, I totally agree with you that like, we don't really, we don't really know, isn't it about time that we know so companies can start building in a way that's going to be acceptable within the regulatory perimeter and also, you know, grow, innovate, and then go operate not just in the US, but all over the all over all over the world. I know there have been efforts to do that. We're just not seeing, you know, anything concrete yet. And we risk kind of losing the battlefield, right, as we're running over a bunch of mines. I just totally made that expression up. <laughs> that works. <laughs> one, one, one last comment and, and implication on this. I think it's interesting to see kind of what happens when BUSD supply comes down. And so I think it reached a high of 20 through $25 billion. Uh, it has now you know, dropped a, a fair amount. I think it's now down to you know, under you know, $10 billion. And so that demand has to go somewhere. And so it's very clear that there's demand for this representation of a dollar on a blockchain. People used to get it through BUSD. And what we've seen, I was looking at some data last week that you know, Tether has actually grown and benefited quite a bit where some of that demand has gone into USDT. Uh, and so Tether is actually at the highest market share of stablecoin circulating supply since like November, 2021. And so it's not clear if there's a good understanding of what the consequences and implications are, you know, if stablecoins regulated by the NYDFS are you know, forced to redeem themselves and kind of go down, it's not that no one wants a stablecoin anymore, it's that then the demand goes into USDT, uh, goes into others. And curious, Juan David, if, if you've seen you know, any you know, in the market uh, changes as BUSD draws down, what this means for USDT and, and other you know, stablecoins that you're seeing. No, definitely. I mean, look, and I think for, for context, so working as a, as a market maker, we, we actually trade and, and, and constantly provide liquidity to, to a lot of these markets. And, and we, we act as a, as a dedicated market maker for, I would say, wide majority of, of stablecoin issuers. So, so we, we get to see a little bit of, of what happens in the market. And I think what you said, you know, is, is very important, which is, which is the need for this product and the fact that that need doesn't go anywhere. And, you know, it might be like jumping ahead, but, you know, when you look at the difference between where we are today or where we were a year ago with UST at the time and the products that Terra was bringing to the market, correct? We, we were in a situation where, where I would ask people, where are you investing in? And I would actually get an answer where someone would say, I'm investing in USD. And people in their mind, they would associate the stable asset with an investment. They would associate it. And I met multiple people that would say, I'm invested in USD. I've never heard absolutely anyone 
to tell me I'm invested on USDC or BUSD, correct? And as such, the behavior in the markets does reflect that. It's purely transactional. So the, the flow can, cannot be matched in one place. It goes elsewhere, correct? There are no decreases in demand because there is no expectation of revenue from holding the asset. It's just purely needed to be able to to do business, you know. And this takes us even even farther to to the to the latest situation that is happening at the moment with Silvergate, one of the biggest banks of of crypto. And the fact that people are starting to realize that it's going to be harder and harder for them to get their hands on digital assets. I mean, we're having discussions at the company where we're thinking, okay, what do we do if they are not there anymore and the infrastructure for these, these currencies are, are not there? And it's not because we expect revenue from them or because people expect revenue from them, but it's just infrastructure. And that's what we see it and that's what we see in the market. The flows are there and they just move from one exchange to the other, from BUSD to USDC. Uh, but there is a need in the market, definitely. Yeah, in the same way we're seeing fluctuate demand across various stable coins is to your point, Sigal, we're going to see a lot of companies, you know, doing regulatory arbitrage. Where is it friendlier for me to operate? And the worst thing about regulatory arbitrage, it's not it's not good for anybody, not even for regulators or for companies that need to be jumping from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And it it's it's a lack of focus on developing the product and focus on trying to survive geographically. So so that's great discussion. Thank you for that. Kai, I'm gonna hand it over to you for our next story. Yeah, so the next story is 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 a big one in, in that Coinbase launches a, a new L2 called Base. And so on February 23rd, the testnet launch of Base uh, was announced. Uh, Base is intending to be a secure, low-cost, developer-friendly way for anyone, anywhere to build decentralized apps on-chain. And so their goal is to make on-chain the next online and onboard 1 billion users into the crypto economy. And so BASE is being built on Optimism's OP stack with the vision of creating a standard modular roll-up agnostic super chain powered by Optimism. That's, that's a lot there. So first, like this I believe is one of the most interesting announcements that's happened you know, from you know, a major you know, crypto company in the past you know, year. And you know, Seagal, we'd love to start with you for reactions of, my, my first thought was like, here you have a public company, a regulated US-based public company that is launching a layer two rollup settling to Ethereum, which is effectively an on-chain business. Like, what does that mean? Is, is that as groundbreaking as, as it seems? You know, how do you think about this from you know, the, the perspective of, this is a regulated business getting into a brand new you know, type of product line that is more decentralized and permissionless? Yeah, I mean, I think it's super exciting. First of all, as a regulated company, it's going to have an obligation to make all kinds of, you know, quarterly disclosures, et cetera. So we'll know, I mean, Coinbase is already putting information uh, out about it, but they'll have to put other information out about it um, in their disclosures. And, and that'll be really interesting to see. They also an announced you know, in bold on their blog post that there's not going to be a token. You know, they're building out core, the next generation of core, you know, internet infrastructures. They don't need a token. Um, it's also a US-based company. So, you know, we were talking before about pushing companies out of the US. Coinbase is saying, we're here, we're here to stay. We're, we're going to allow um, developers all over the world, but including in the US, to um, develop develop here in all kinds of really fascinating ways. And then, of course, the most exciting thing, I think, is that it has, you know, 110 million verified users. So it's going to, um, it depending on the tech, right, it has the real potential to be a very exciting gateway into this space for those, for those users. And, you know, Coinbase has always been transparent about wanting to work with regulators, want, you know, going in the front door, et cetera. So ho hopefully there'll be a, a lot of good and constructive partnership on that on that end. By the way, I mean, Brian Armstrong has been saying for, he's, you know, talk about disclosure and transparency. He's been saying that he's going to do something like this going back to 2016, and he's just executing on his, on his plan, um, uh, which is, you know, which is great. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited that it's happening here. I'm excited that it's happening with a public company. 
um, and look forward to see, you know, where they take it. Then Mauricio, what, what do you think this means for optimism and layer twos on, on Ethereum in, in general? You know, why do you think, you know, they went with the layer two route versus, you know, they could have built their own equivalent of Binance Smart Chain. They could have, you know, done their own blockchain. Like, what do you think this this means in terms of their their choices here? I think the thinking is we need to be on the most robust ecosystem for financial services. And right now that is Ethereum. And they also want to build on a scalable or more scalable solution. That is a layer two. And they chose optimism because they can start a little bit more centralized with a few orderers and then move and decentralize all of that gradually as this thing uh, picks up. The fact that they are using a, an optimistic rollup is also uh, some kind of interesting technical options or, or choices that they made. It's probably lighter on the developer and user side of things. So for them, it will be interesting to kind of help develop that kind of, uh, of stack. You and I did the predictions episode earlier this year. We talked about, you know, layer twos and ZKs. We had uh, ZKVM announced by Polygon and now this new layer two announced by Coinbase. So I think prediction-wise, we're kind of shaping up to be really precise at this stage. And I think the, the, one of the things that really caught my attention on the announcement was that this is developer-friendly, right? Um, we, we've seen late last year with the developer ecosystem reports that Ethereum continues to be the ecosystem that attracts the largest number of builders. And I think that with base coming in that strong uh, with that angle, we'll only solidify, no pun intended, uh, that position about uh, the Ethereum ecosystem for sure. And then you know, one of the observations that, that I've had is like, it's, it seems like we're at this really fascinating time that's almost like we're in this like protocol war uh, where you have like literally 15 to 20 different super talented teams that are well-funded, that are building either new layer twos on top of Ethereum or alternative layer ones, a bunch of different technologies, you know, different trade-offs that they're making. And you know, it seems unlikely that five years from now, there's gonna be room for 20. Uh, it might not be one. And so Juan David, how do you think about this you know, battle between protocols you know, to get established as one of the mainstream, fast, secure, low cost uh, chains? And, does this cement optimism in like the OP stack, if Coinbase is gonna bring 100 million consumers in, is that enough of a network effect where other developers are gonna build on the OP stack, market makers are gonna come to the OP stack, uh, or how do you think that that battle's gonna play out? No, definitely, I mean, look, we, we see in the market that there's definitely a war going on in terms of attracting the, the best talent, correct? And you have, you have entrepreneurs that take advantage of this and they basically, let's say, try to build proven business models on different chains to try to take advantage of the massive treasuries that are around. But the real question is, how do you attract the real innovators? How do you attract the people that are building the next decentralized applications that really matter? And that's the part where, where I'm not so sure if this is going to be the solution, I'll be completely honest. I mean, when I look at the, when, when I look at the announcement, I think this makes total sense from a business point of view for Coinbase as a company. Is it a game changer? Uh, to be honest, I don't think so. I mean, look, uh, in the same announcement, Coinbase clearly stated that any protocol that they would build would still be multi-chain, correct? So imagine Coinbase comes up with this amazing decentralized exchange, which hopefully they do. And, and they have all the incentives in the world to not only put it on their own chain. Like in the same way that if you look at where Uniswap is going and Aave, they are embracing all chains, correct? So, so far for me, it's hard to see this because when I look at Coinbase, I would have expected them as a company to focus on providing value and really building the financial infrastructure and then embrace the multi-chain world where they will build an amazing decentralized exchange. They will build an amazing like money markets platform and put them where there is the most adoption, put them on optimism, put them on arbitrum, put them on whatever it is, but they're gonna be facing a lot of conflicts of interest themselves where they build they build applications and they are going to start to have a little bit of an internal like fight between do we promote our chain or do we promote our product and and the reality of it is that i think that's could be any strategic mistake yeah it's it's a super interesting comment about just what does it mean for it to be the default and how does it compare to their support of other chains 
know, on the Coinbase wallet today, you could choose across, I think, like seven or eight different EVM chains. And so is this just one of those eight? Or is this, you know, every consumer coming into it, those are the first you know, applications you know, that they're using. And so I think that's an interesting question to, to watch. And then the other question I had is, in, in curious your perspective on this, Seagal, is they've said that they want this to be as permissionless as Ethereum. You know, that's their goal is to actually launch this permissionless network. Yet to start, it's going to have one centralized sequencer. And so it'll just be Coinbase you know, ordering the transactions and settling them to Ethereum. And so I, has, has FinCEN analyzed the implications of layer two roll-up techniques and like what the responsibilities are yet? It seems like this is new ground around, can a public company be able to let anyone build whatever they want, batch that together and publish it to Ethereum? Or do you think over time, they're going to have to add some type of permissions to say this type of activity because Coinbase is in a role of sequencing and ordering it together, they're facilitating it. Therefore, you know they have to treat it, you know, like you know they would treat you know other activities on their exchange. Yeah, you know, is is that being contemplated yet? What it means to help operate a permissionless rollup, you know, as a, a regulated business. So that's a great question. Of course, it's been three years since I was at Treasury, so I can't tell you what they're thinking now. What I can tell you, um, of course, is that. Uh, they regularly meet with a wide variety of industry players. Um, and I think that they're ideally evolving their thinking in the space. I mean, in a, in, from my personal perspective with crypto, we're going to kind of like have to get away from thinking about going after illicit finance, which is FinCEN's primary function using the same tools that we did with traditional finance. So if something is, if it's permissionless, let's start thinking about like, how do we incorporate on-chain compliance, you know, on-chain protocols? How do we do this in a, in a way that like, again, allows us to get to the next step in innovation while also figuring out with that next step, how new tools can, can get us to a place where the ecosystem is safe and um, safe and secure, because if we're only thinking about this in a permissioned, you know, as a you know, as like AML existing in a permissioned con construct, then I then we're not being sufficiently creative, um, and we're not incentivizing tools to be built that can, again, achieve those long-term objectives of ferreting out illicit, you know, illicit finance, national security threats. So I, I just think we have to evolve to a place where we no longer think it's permissioned versus, versus permissionless. You know, permissionless is just the wild west and nobody follows any rules. Permissioned is the place where it does. We have to understand that things are moving towards a, per, a permissionless world and then, and then incentivize the right kinds of tools again, that can cut against, can make sure that it's a place that's hostile to bad actors. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm also curious if this ends up, you know, becoming a path for on-chain attestations of KYC. Yeah. And maybe that becomes, you know, one of the differentiators they have, if they could take 100 million Coinbase verified consumers and have some attestation to represent their KYC on base, like some bridging of those worlds you know, could come together. They will definitely do that, correct? Yeah. They would, they would definitely do that. I mean, that's what they have going for them. Basically, it's a, it's a fully KYC chain. I mean, that's what they have going for them. Uh, they're not the only one doing that, by the way. There are other chains out there that are also implementing native on-chain KYC systems. So it's not the absolute winner, but that's what they're going for, of course. That's really the, the differentiation factor, not the technology. Yeah, I mean, the other piece of it and is that if you think we have to also rethink like this whole construct of KYC, right? Um, I mean, I'm a big believer in like in going to a, a like a, a world where you can use attestations as opposed to just floating your KYC all over the place where it then gets stuck in honeypots of data. And, you know, we all find our information on the dark web. So that's the kind of creative thinking that you want to see happen in this space, which is exciting. Yeah, I, I, I think I just, you know, to wrap it up, I think old frameworks do not apply to new paradigms. The decentralized paradigm is different. We'll need to rethink 
what uh, KYC means in this context and happy to kind of see that going forward with the largest exchanges in the space because they can do that in a kind of structured manner. But yeah, let's take a break now. Hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa-accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is rarely easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11fs.com slash homebuying. That's 11fs.com slash homebuying. Welcome back for the second half of the show. We're starting off with this news about Spotify testing token-enabled music playlists. So music streaming platform Spotify is testing this new service. They're calling these token-enabled playlist that will allow holders of the NFTs, non-fungible tokens, to connect their wallets and listen to curated music. Currently, the service is available to token holders within the Fluff, Moonbirds, Kingship, and Overlord communities. The curated playlist will be actively updated during the three-month testing period and can only be accessed by community members through a unique link. Spotify did not provide additional details on plans to roll out the feature uh, more broadly in, in the future. Again, this is not the first time um, NFTs have been used for token gated access. We've seen a lot in the you know core degen NFT communities, but it's significant that such a large player in music that has obviously transformed how we experience music is starting to dip their toes into NFTs. I'm going to start with you, Kai, because I know you're, a, you're an NFT degen, uh, not even closeted anymore. Um, what's your take on this? Because I feel that this is somewhat a sort of a simpler use case for someone like Spotify where they could be playing to start with. What do you think? I think this is a cool concept and an experiment you know, for them to do. It's also interesting to note that you know, one approach around NFTs and music is just saying, you know, let's create an NFT of a song and let's like try and sell that and have someone collect it. And I'm not sure if Spotify has, has done things around that. Uh, and we're seeing some platforms that are you know, testing it and getting a, a little traction, but has it really taken off the way that you know, profile picture avatars and you know, even digital art has, has taken off today? Um, I think one of the most interesting elements of NFTs as infrastructure, and we talked about this in our case study, uh, you know, last episode with Wallet Connect, is it's just an easier way to do collaborations. And I think the music industry is really much built around collaborations and, and remixes. And so to be able to have someone connect a wallet and to get a different experience based upon what's in their wallet, and for one brand to say, if you hold an NFT for my brand, you get access to a playlist, you get access to a song that you don't get access to if you don't hold another NFT. I think that as a core primitive is a really interesting area that you could start to experiment around and it adds some real utility. And so, you know, it's not you're buying an NFT, you know, just to speculate. Maybe you don't even buy the NFT. Maybe it's, you know, an artist's, you know, first fans, you know, are airdropped an NFT and they get to listen to music before someone else. Uh, and so I think we're just going to see a bunch of these collaborations between brands and musicians, between musicians and you know PFP projects. Um, and I think it's just going to be really fun. And so I'm excited to to play around with it. Uh, I think the challenge is you know how will Apple look at this? And you know you could argue that these are digital goods, and if they give you some benefit inside the app, you know does that you know, mean it has to have the 30% you know tax and you know, how do they you know, treat that? And that seems to be the reason that they're starting on Android. But I think these are exactly the type of like Web 2.5, you know, how do you merge the world? 
type of experiments that are, are going to be really interesting to watch. Not exactly the DeFi mullet here, but more like a music mullet, if you will. Uh, Juan David, this is uh, an opportunity for obviously this built-in CRM that NFTs seem to be uh, transforming into. In terms of music, I mean, is this something that we can kind of see Spotify, you think, m moving more into this world of Web3? Or are, are they going to just do, you know, dipping their toe, you know, taking it off, drying out and walking somewhere else like that, uh, you know, in their earlier uh, experimentations of uh, having some of the artists help the artists promote that into the platform? What do you think this kind of entails for Spotify in the long term? Yeah, so so of course I, I don't know what's gonna be the corporate strategy of Spotify. That I would be crazy for, to think that I, I would know that. But I do know a couple of things about the the business models in, in that industry, and and it's very interesting because for me Spotify is is well placed to be a company that can take massive advantage of the use of tokenization in all shapes and forms, NFTs and tokenized assets, into the music industry. I mean, it's an industry that, as you pointed out, is in need of high collaboration. I personally have actually invested in early stage artists myself, where I've like done some sort of like BC positions into, an, into a band, for example. And it's super interesting to see the challenges that they face when they are starting, correct? Like the, the industry is a lot more complicated and, and, and the, the business of music is a lot more sophisticated than what you would think. And on top of that, for people that are generally not useful, to, to do this, correct? They need to understand how to manage their 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 phonographic rights, their rights of the, the institutions that they make, the organizations, correct? And they can divide them and they can use them to incentivize people, correct? So, so you have an artist, an artist is a company, but also each song is an individual intellectual property that can be divided into multiple parts because a part of that intellectual property can be used to, for example, cross-sell to movies and a part of that intellectual property are revenue generations from Spotify. Yeah, And artists, are uh, they understand this now and they're starting to understand how this business works because they have to interact with Spotify all the time, correct? For them, Spotify is like their business portal already. And now they, they realize, okay, my business is to monetize my community. That's my business because I make money from the shows, I make money from monetizing my community. Spotify gives me revenue, but the reality is that it's only si significant for very, very few artists, only for, for the top tier artists, correct? Everybody else, Spotify is a marketing tool. It is a marketing tool for the, in, the artists that I invest in, it is a marketing tool. So Spotify is so well-placed to take advantage of this because they can help artists from the very earliest stage to understand how to fund their endeavor, correct? It could, it could become an, uh, a primary issuance platform, then how to manage their community and monetize their community and how to build engagement all the way to listening to the music. So it is, if they embrace it, I think they will crush it. That's, that's my point. Yeah, they, have, they do have a vantage point and, and uh, you know, kind of going into what you just said, and we, we did do a, a Web3 music episode last year, but uh, Segal, if we think about you know all these rights that are associated with music and and how these things could be perceived by some security regulators around the world, that this could imply that these are you know borderline securities as well, even though they're on an NFT form, they're being kind of handled by you know decentralized platform. Is this maybe the reason why? Spotify has been shy in just experimenting in kind of accessory use cases and not in the core of the music industry, as kind of uh, Juan Davi was uh, indicated. I, I know we're speculating, but you know, coming from your background, what would be the implications and what they would need to consider if they are willing to kind of endeavor into that space? That's a great question. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what their lawyers are are thinking about it. Not everything is a security just because it's tokenized, right? Or because it's like you know using dis distributed ledger technology, and we kind of just got to completely get away from that construct and go back to what I said in the beginning, which is like you know what do we care about here in terms of what what should a government care about or not, or actually frankly not care about here in terms of um, how people want to you know, listen to music and what the gateways to music should be um, and how they want to monetize off of that, just, just like they do across with all kinds of different mechanisms they use to incentivize, you know, people to get onto their, their platform. So if, if the reason they were thinking about it, they were slow to get in was because they're worried that it was a security, then we've kind of gone off the rails. 
a little bit because that shouldn't be the question, right? People, you know, kids are like on Roblox creating avatars and thinking about, you know, gaming and all sorts of other things. I, I think the interesting questions with um, NFTs and, and music really will be about ownership, copyright and ownership and how do you trace it? And do you, you know, what segmented of it do you, you can say that you own it and you have an ownership right uh, to it, but what segment, you know, is it, does that mean you, obviously you own the, the whole creative work, but what does it mean about different segment, you know, chord progressions and um, how are we going to like kind of think about that in copyright law, um, which is, I think what we should be talking about much more so when it comes to music as opposed to whether everything is just a security or isn't a security. And that, I'm, I'm guessing that's part of, you know, that's the direction that we're going to go in when it comes to law and music and um, NF NFTs. Yeah, I just hope that this is the one technology advancement that wouldn't put more pressure into artists than the previous technology advancement. Right. So that's great. Let's uh, wrap it up and jump to our honorable mentions. In this part of the show, we want to quickly round up some of the other stories from the month that we didn't have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. So to start off, a crypto investment firm with links to parliamentary groups appear to have vanished. Phoenix Community Capital established itself last year as a cryptocurrency project and investment scheme, which said at one point was valued at $800 million. It was a sponsor uh, of one uh, APPG, so informal groups in the parliament formed of MPs and peers to discuss topics of special interest. Its co-founder, Luke Sullivan, spoke at the event for a second APPG as well as appearing as a panelist for events hosted by peers in the parliament. Now, on, on my side of one side of my brain goes like, yes, it's great that regulators and legislators are getting in on with the industry. But again, uh, separation of responsibilities and, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, Chinese walls to split things, it's always a safe uh, practice. Uh, we are not a new industry. This is all part of financial services. So we should not be, you know, mixing legislators with, you know, investors or anything like that. This is not practices we would be willing to bring in a crypto, but still here we are, right? So lesson learned, do your own research, due diligence if you're going to invest on anything. Oh my God, just, you know, who who's holding your money, whether it's crypto or fiat, it doesn't matter. Um, I think we can all learn from this and let's hope this doesn't become more of a contagion like we had last year. Okay, Kai, with you next. Yeah, so speaking of NFTs, you know, Reddit has given away over a million Super Bowl NFTs on Polygon. Uh, and so there have been a total of 10 million Reddit collectible uh, avatar NFTs minted to date. Uh, and this was a promotion where Super Bowl avatars were offered free to all Reddit users. And there are now more than 6.6 .6 million unique wallets that hold one of these Reddit avatar NFTs. And I think it's a great example of just how uh, it's not just about buying NFTs. It's the ability to go in and claim one for free is this new consumer interaction engagement model where someone gets something that they can perceive that has value and has meaning to them. Uh, and now it becomes a CRM that Reddit and other you know, brands can engage with them you know, over time. And so it seems like Reddit is one of the best examples of a traditional Web2 social network that has really found a working model you know, to embed NFTs inside their business. So the last one is the Deutsche Bank completion of an asset management test with the Memento blockchain, uh, putting Domani's DXTF tokens into focus. That means that Deutsche Bank, one of the largest uh, banks in Germany, is using the Memento blockchain uh, to successively complete a proof of concept, a POC, with Project DAMA, Digital Assets Management access. The goal is to provide a more efficient, secure, and flexible solution for digital fund management and investment servicing. According to Deutsche Bank, they said in a report that the project aims to address challenges associated with launching and accessing digital funds. The German bank also said in that report that fees on the service were provided by Domani, a memento blockchain product that issues the DEXTF tokens. 
Project Dama would work as a one-stop shop digital fund investment servicing platform where asset managers and their existing transfer agents, fund administrators, and custodians can plug in and play to significantly reduce effort and cost. Now, this is one of those use cases that we talk about enterprise blockchain. Enterprise blockchain has its space, it's very niche, and it's solving efficiency problems in a variety of ways. And, and obviously, we know that all of the registration that goes into fund management and the data and the data management and transparency are of significant relevance in that process. So using a distributed ledger technology, as in this case, the Memento blockchain, would bring a lot of efficiency when you're dealing with uh, multiple parties like in the funds uh, management industry. So glad to see this evolving, uh, and let's hope that this uh, can actually stand on its own legs because we've seen a lot of enterprise blockchain projects going belly up recently. So let's uh, hope that this one actually stands the test of time. For this last segment of today's show, we're going to bring the panel back in, and I want to take a look at what news and headlines have been grabbing their attention this month. So Sigal, let's start with you. Uh, could you share something new that you're already ex you're really excited about in our industry recently? Well, actually, we touched upon it a little bit before, which is I'm really excited about the potential to use like zero knowledge proof attestations, et cetera, with digital ID and to kind of completely reformulate how we think about our identity and the ability to interact um, in all sorts of different venues without having to like show everybody our driver's license and you know reveal everything about um ourselves or email you know all of our personal data all over the world i think i think like this for me that's like the single most exciting thing just because of my background it's like how do we how can we actually completely reconfigure not just identity from a tech perspective but then also get regulators to really think about how how we how we use attestations to decrease you know fraud honeypots of information you know our information getting stuck on the dark web that for me that's just you know i geek out on those kinds of things so that is certainly an imperative juan david what about you what's uh, getting you go get you going these days in the industry yeah, so look, I mean, for me, what's what's close to my heart is really the the amazing innovation that is going on in terms of the creation of financial protocols. Even though there is a, a bear market, so they say, it is amazing to see what's being created. I mean, I think that first, everything that is technology that enables derivatives on chain is is booming. Like we are amazed to see the amount of incredible protocols that are allowing for decentralized perpetuals, decentralized options, decentralized OTC markets. And, and I think this shows the strength of how the industry has been reacting to, to what happened last year, correct? And to, and to what happened after FTX and, and all the way up to, to one of the topics that I have around the, let's say, bringing close to my heart, which is everything related to, to decentralized cross-margin accounts. It's, it sounds like a very niche topic, right? A little bit geek, but uh, I think that for decentralized finance to be actually as efficient as a centralized exchange and really there not be any reason why people wouldn't use it compared to something like Coinbase or, or Binance today. That is that is the killer feature that is missing, which is the capacity for, for collateral to be used and, and understood from a single point of risk. Uh, and then to be composable on top of that, that would be great. So I, I know a lot of protocols are working on this. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about it, and and I hope that in the in the next uh, in the next cycle, this technology will come to to fruition. The holy grail of liquidity. <laughs> Kai, how about you? Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this concept of account abstraction and how you can improve the wallet user experience, moving away from seed phrases and you know having a, a single key you know, control, you know, a, an account on Ethereum and instead having these smart wallets, we can program logic and controls you know, into them uh, that I think will be a, a game changer for making wallets much more usable for mainstream consumers. And uh, there's a Ethereum standard called ERC4337 uh, that, you know, just got, uh, just got released in, in the smart contract uh, deployed, I think this past week at ETH Denver, uh, so there's a lot of excitement and activity with developers 
trying to create you know better designs for wallets and account abstraction is is kind of one of the leading ways to to improve it. Yeah, the bad thing of me being the last one is that I would definitely repeat one of the ones you said. And account abstraction is probably my favorite advancement uh, recently. The amount of uh, UX use cases that it enables builders to build because it's a it's a development primitive. It's going to be really remarkable, and I'm I'm hoping to see in the next three months the amount of novelty we're going to see in the UX and crypto to finally you know cross that hurdle. That was that's that's very promising, and we're super excited about that. So. That wraps up uh, this week's news show. Just a quick reminder to let you know that the views of our panels are their own and not necessarily the opinions of the companies that they're representing. Thank you so much to all our guests. Uh, where can people find more about you, Seagal? You could find more about Ribbit Capital <laughs> on our website. Um, there's lots of places to find out about me, I guess LinkedIn or something. Juan David. You can find me on Twitter, Juan D. Mendieta. I follow updates on all the research that I do on protocols, experiments, results from my algorithms. Very interesting content. And everything that I, that I get when I interact with early stage entrepreneurs and what they're building. So if you want to check it out and, and try to see where some of these protocols are going, no financial advice, feel free to follow. <laughs> Absolutely. Kai. On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. And as for me, you can find me in Twitter, 0xMauricio, on LinkedIn, Mauricio Magali, and obviously 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.